Luke Howard of Utah Opera has thought a good deal about Mozart and his music. He agrees that the plot of the magic flute is complicated, and it's not the complexity of human relationships that swirl around a basic dramatic premise like love, as in Mozart's The Marriage of Figaro, or morality and politics, as in Don Giovanni. Neither is it a total comedy, though there are comic moments. It's truly a head-scratcher from almost any viewpoint, Howard says. The opera conductor and part-time Mozart scholar Meyer Fredman once remarked on how oddly the plot of the magic flute unfolds. An overture, then a dragon, he notes. Three cabaret ladies, a quasi-folk song, an intensely passionate invocation to a portrait, and a virtuoso tirade. Now follows a padlock, a magic flute, a magic glockenspiel, and five singers who step out of character to talk directly to the audience, and the heroine hasn't even made her entrance yet. The magic flute is actually a kind of fairy story, he says. It turns out that Mozart's librettist Emanuel Schikaneder and his troupe had been performing fairy tale operas for several years before the magic flute and he begged Mozart to help him cash in on the current fashion of magic operas or fairy tale operas. To an extent, then, the plot line of the magic flute was already set by these earlier precedents, Howard tells us. At the very least, the two friends created a kind of opera in which complicated plot twists, bizarre narrative developments, and various conundrums either didn't matter to the audience or could be explained away by the fancifulness and imagination of the genre itself. Some scholars claim that the peculiarities of the plot can be understood in terms of a larger universal story that untangles the complexities of facade and inner truth. In this interpretation, the magic flute is a musical lesson in how we humans make sense of the world, representing a philosophical approach commonly known in German as Sein und Schein, reality and appearance. It invites the viewer to look past first appearances and examine the premises and assumptions on which those appearances are based. In other words, it takes a story much farther than a mere fairy tale where characters are types and the distinction between good and evil is usually well marked, and turns it into a more meaningful journey. Just as the character Tamino is forced here to reconsider some of the allegations, circumstantial evidence, rumor, and other manifestations of apparent truth, the audience also takes part in this exercise, discovering the reality beneath the deceptive appearance. This makes the first part of the opera an intentional deception, trying to convince Tamino that good is evil and evil good. The second act then pulls the curtain back and reveals the truth that the queen had hidden in the opera's opening. But the key to understanding what's really being presented on the stage is Mozart's music itself. Words of Luke Howard writing for Utah Opera. It's interesting to hear his thoughts because there is a nationally known opera director named A. Scott Parry who is a ponderer as he prepares the works he's asked to stage. And the magic of Parry is that he carries that pondering so lightly. We delight in his artistry 
and maybe on some level have an aha about his vision for a piece like the magic flute. How fortunate for the singers at Marywood University that A. Scott Parry has a long-standing professional relationship with Dr. Rick Hoffenberg, co-chair of the Department of Music, Theater, and Dance at the school. Parry signed on to direct a complete production of The Magic Flute that will open this coming week on campus. Dr. Hoffenberg paid a visit to the WVIA studios to share his excitement about the project and the efforts of everyone involved. I actually didn't discover opera really until college. Our department, our music department, had a lottery for tickets to the Metropolitan Opera. And I don't think very many students submitted their names, so I won a couple of times. And I really didn't realize the value of what I'd received. The first opera tickets I won were orchestra seats to the complete ring cycle, which, as we know, are thousands of dollars nowadays. They may not have been thousands back then, but they were still certainly expensive. And to me, that was transformative. And then I remember the next year I won tickets to a series of operas that furthered my interest and I wanted to get to know more about this art form. So a couple of years after I graduated, I became rehearsal administrator at New York City Opera and I had that job for about a year and a half. And since 1999, I've been spending my summers on the music staff at Chautauqua Opera. Uh, and I also have an administrative role there. I do the daily scheduling. So I'm really involved with the inner workings of the opera company. That being said, this is really the first time I've taken on an opera like this from the standpoint of being the, I guess, producer, you might say, or general director o overseeing the process. And it sure gives me newfound appreciation for the people who do that for a living. There's a lot that goes into it. What was the impetus for doing it here with the Marywood students? Well, I got wonderful advice from a professor of mine who said the way to really fall in love with Mozart is through his operas and to gain a greater window into understanding. Because we weren't talking about opera. We were talking about probably orchestral music or chamber music or piano music. I don't even remember. But he said, in order to understand Mozart, you really have to look at his operas. And I really do think it's the clearest demonstration of his genius is through the operas. And so that's one of several reasons why I, I wanted students to be able to bear witness to everything that went into this wonderful stage work. I also looked, along with a couple of colleagues of mine, I looked at the singers we have at Marywood right now. We have gotten more and more really uh, advanced singers, and I felt like the time was right to do our second opera. Our first came in 2016. We did Dido and Aeneas. And I wanted to do something more ambitious this time. I feel like we've continued to get more and better and more advanced singers and I wanted to be able to continue to challenge them. So when we looked at the magic flute, I think first of all we saw that we would be able to cast it with our students and that they would really enjoy everything that it offers. I mean, I think that's critical because if they're going to be putting all this time and effort into learning something so difficult and that takes them out of their comfort zone and is really 
something that they've never experienced before. I want it to be something they really love. And we looked at a number of possibilities, but this was the one that I thought would really spark their interest. And in our opera workshop at Marywood, we have several times done scenes from the Magic Flute, and the students have always enjoyed them. The cast is large enough that I knew it would give us the opportunity to feature a lot of students, not only through the individual principal roles, but you have a group of three ladies, you have a group of three spirits. In addition to lots of roles, you have two guards and a chorus on top of it. So I knew that we would be able to give a lot of students the experience of being a part of this, and that was important to me too. And you have a number of colleagues who are remarkable vocalists on the faculty, and you have an orchestral conductor who can put together the forces that you would need to accompany this. So it seemed like you had the forces in place. We do. I am so lucky because not only do I have incredibly talented colleagues, but they're all wonderful colleagues. They are giving of their time. They are unselfish and they really wanted to put forth the effort to make this a success. So, for example, on the the vocal side, both Ellen Rutkowski and Jennifer Kogel have been very involved with the process. In addition to helping with the vocal preparation, Ellen oversaw the fundraising part of this, which was considerable. I mean, we, we tried to limit expenses as much as humanly possible in order to keep this an economical venture. We're not charging admission prices, which of course is very unusual for opera because opera is expensive. But I did not want this to be an undue burden on our budget. So Ellen went to dozens of businesses, local businesses, and asked for their contributions in the form of purchasing advertisements in our program. Jennifer Kogel, in addition to helping to work with some of the singers, also contributed to the fundraising by helping to coordinate a grant that we received from the Scranton Area Foundation. And that grant made this whole venture possible. We, we certainly wouldn't have been able to do it without that generous grant. So they were tremendous colleagues. Evan Harger, our director of orchestral activities, I just can't say enough about him. I, he's quickly been discovered by the local community, and it's, it's no longer a secret that we have this fantastic orchestra conductor at Marywood. In addition to his skills and in addition to being a wonderful colleague, he loves opera. And so he offered to me, shows the kind of colleague he is, he offered to prepare the orchestra for these performances and have me conduct. And of course, I was really happy at the opportunity to conduct the orchestra. And I'm really lucky. I I can't say that often enough. Evan and I have worked together many times, both with orchestra and choral concerts, now with the opera and also with our musical theater productions, which he conducts. So it's been just a really enjoyable and thoroughly rewarding process. Tell us about the story. I won't attempt it, but we may be aware of the Queen of the Night aria. Yes, yes. Well, the funny thing is, when that that's the role that I think most people know. And the first question that people tend to ask when they find out a bunch of undergraduates are doing are doing the magic flute is, do you have a Queen of the Night? Well, yes, we actually do. We we really do have a talented crop of singers. But I'll emphasize before talking more about the characters in the story, it really is 
unusual. It's it's not typical for undergraduates to be doing something like this. It's of course written for mature professional opera singers. And so if it's done in an academic setting, you will typically find it done by graduate students at a school of music or a conservatory by aspiring opera singers. So the fact that we're able to do it with undergrads and even some talented high school students in our chorus, it, it's something I'm really proud of. And I don't mind bragging about them and emphasizing in talking about the opera that, that it is unusual that we have undergraduates who are capable of doing it. So to introduce some of the characters, I mean, I won't go through every detail of the story because I want people to be somewhat surprised if they come to see it. But to introduce some of the characters, it's, it's really a fairy tale. It's intended to be family friendly. And in fact, Mozart himself took his seven-year-old son, Carl, to see a performance of it. He was very proud. And so to start with the, the Queen of the Night, the Queen of the Night is introduced as an evil character. Her daughter, Pamina, has been captured by the high priest, Zarastro. And at the beginning of the opera, we see a prince named Tamino. He's being chased by a serpent and three ladies, three servants of the Queen of the Night, rescue him. And the reason that the Queen wants Tamino to live is because Tamino is the person who she hopes will rescue her daughter from Zarastro. Toward the beginning of the opera, we also meet a bird catcher named Papageno. And when Tamino wakes up after the three ladies having killed the serpent, he sees Papageno and assumes that Papageno killed the serpent. But, of course, we know that's not true, and Papageno starts to spin a lie about how he single-handedly, with no weapons, conquered the serpent. And the three ladies over here, and as punishment, they put a lock on his mouth. And so one of the funnier moments is a quintet sung by Papageno, Tamino, and the three ladies, but for part of the quintet, Papageno can't speak. All he can do is hum. So when he gets the lock removed, it's with the promise of not telling any more lies. So to skip ahead to a couple of the other characters, we later encounter Monostatos, who is in some productions referred to as one of a group of slaves. We don't use the term slaves. We we call them guards, Monostatos and two other guards who are under the purview of Zarastro. And so we see these colliding forces of the queen and her crew, if I can use that word, and uh, the people who come under the spell of Zarastro. And eventually what happens is Pamina, despite being the queen's daughter, she gains some sympathy for Zarastro and believes that his goals are good ones. One reason for that, there's a scene in which uh, Menostatos is about to kill Pamina and it's Zarastro who comes on and saves her. And ultimately, I will say that despite the trials and tribulations, despite some road bumps on the path to Tamino and Pamina falling in love. Things do end happily. There is one scene in, toward the end in which Papageno expresses complete loneliness and he briefly thinks about ending his life, but 
I will tell everyone in case they haven't seen the opera, he falls in love with a woman who was literally made just for him by the name of Papagena, almost his same name, and uh, so everybody ends happy. We don't know which melody to go away humming, do we? It really is true. The Queen of the Night's second aria, she actually has two fantastic arias. I, I like them both equally. The second aria is a very famous showcase for high sopranos. Mozart wrote it for his sister-in-law, who was a notoriously high coloratory soprano. And part of the reason why it's so famous is because it has a number of high Fs above high C, which in the standard repertory, before you get to the last several decades of opera composition, was the highest the highest note written for a singer in a, a standard rep opera. And I, I, again, just to make that exception, since about the, the middle of the 20th century, composers have really pushed the envelope and, you know, the sky's the limit. But up until that point, um, certainly into the 20th century, that was the highest note. Mozart wrote, there's one concert aria for a soprano that goes up to high G, but we're, we're really talking exceptional, exceptionally high writing and it also requires great agility lots of fast notes uh, what we call coloratura so casting that role is very difficult and when people hear the second aria i think they'll know why it's famous but pamina also has a justifiably famous aria a, a slow lament that's very beautiful tamino's opening aria is one of the most popular arias sung by tenors you know, when I hear auditions at Chautauqua, for example, it's like the tenor national anthem. It's, you know, tenors almost have to have to know Tamino's aria if they're in the fock of being a, a young lyric tenor. And then there are other wonderful pieces as well. I mean, the, the finales are like several pieces in one. And as you said, just endless hummable music. How are you setting it? Is it in a land far away, long ago? What are you doing with the concept? So a lot of the credit for this production goes to our stage director, A. Scott Perry. Scott is somebody who I first met at Chautauqua, I think my very first year there. I've worked with him a number of times. He is, in addition to being a phenomenal director and a great colleague, he just spares no effort in helping people who are involved with his productions. So he explained to us in a Zoom call at the very beginning, uh, after we had cast the opera, that he wanted to set the opera not in a specific time and place, but in every time and place. And so what you'll find through the costuming and through the mannerisms of the characters is that each character represents his or her own time and place. And so the characters are coming together in a way that transcends time and place. At least that's the intention. And Scott is very knowledgeable and, and interested in philosophy. And so his work is very influenced by Nietzsche, for example. And so rather than try to create a production that picks a specific date and time, he thought it would be more interesting and farther reaching to draw on many different eras. And I think people will find it really interesting, even people who have seen Magic Flute before. And I will add, 
Scott has done many productions of the Magic Flute. The adaptations of the dialogue are his own, and some of the props are very difficult to come by. He was able to procure some of the uh, some of the props for us from past productions. He's done it at Manhattan School of Music, for example. He's just about to do it later this season, and so uh, to say he has great expertise in this opera is an understatement. We're doing the opera entirely in English. All of the lyrics to the arias and ensembles are in English, and all the dialogue is in English. But Scott, of course, knows the original German text. And when I say he knows it, he knows every word of the German by heart. And so occasionally, of course, he doesn't know every word of our translation by heart. We're doing the Andrew Porter, which is my favorite English translation. But he would rattle off the German of the next phrase and, you know, the singers or I would tell him the English translation that we're using. But he literally knows every German word uttered by every character in this opera. His knowledge is encyclopedic, and yet he's very unintimidating to work with. He didn't make anyone feel like they should have known something that they didn't. He welcomed every question. He he simply could not have been more helpful. And even though his time at Marywood has ended, we did a five-day staging blitz that ended on October 30th. He said to me, uh, if, you'd, if you're willing, I'd really like you to zoom me in for some of the rehearsals from here on out so I can continue to be a part of it. I didn't ask him to do that. I'm not paying him extra to do that. You know, I, it's his contract is up. Now, how many people would do that? How many people, you give them their check, you say, thank you very much. And as busy as he is juggling positions, he's on the faculties of both Manhattan School of Music and NYU and doing opera productions at professional opera companies across the country. He, he does not need to add one more thing to his schedule, but that's it's the kind of person he is and it's the kind of director he is. You know, we, we spent a lot of the day, starting on October 26, much of the day, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, and then literally all day, morning until evening Saturday, and all day, morning until evening on Sunday, October 30th. And I, I told them at the beginning of the process, you're going to be tired at the end of this. It's going to be a fatiguing process, but I think very exciting. And until the very end, of course, they were tired. We were all a little bit tired, but they were giving 100% right up until the end. Uh, it's just been a joy to see what the students have put into this. And of course, the more they put in and the more they bring to the table, the more Scott is able to help them. I told them from the beginning, I don't want you to show up to the staging rehearsals as a blank slate. I want and Scott wants you to come in with your own ideas. He may refine them in a few cases. Perhaps he may disagree with them. But bring your own thoughts to the table. What is your opinion about why your character sings this or says this? And they really did. And so I I just can't emphasize enough how proud I am of the students. And we know that Mozart is a composer. You used the word genius at the start, but he is such a humane composer, someone who has a sense of the range of human emotion and the depth of human emotion. What do we all, the students, you, Scott, what do we all experience about life? What do we learn? You know, one of the ironies about Magic Flute is that it's sometimes said that opera is about the suspension of disbelief. 
despite the fact that some of the characters are fantastical. You know, you have this Papageno, this bird catcher who really isn't like anyone we know. And you have these three spirits who aren't, you know, they're kind of fanciful characters and other people as well. You know, the queen is larger than life. They're not intended to be true to life characters. They're intended to be somewhat fanciful. And yet the irony is their experiences are ones that we can relate to. Mozart portrays their emotions in ways that we really feel. Even the you know, the, the queen of the night who we're led to believe is evil, we can feel her need for vengeance upon the person who captured her daughter. And when Zarastro gives this extended speech at the beginning of Act Two, we understand where he's coming from. Uh, when Papageno sings his quote-unquote, it's known as the suicide aria, as part of the Act Two finale, we all know what loneliness feels like. We know what it feels like to have maybe been in love or to have had a crush on someone and it didn't work out and to be left alone and our hearts go out to him. And thankfully, Mozart wrote this as a comedy, not a tragedy. So he doesn't actually die. Uh, nobody does. He he ends up in love. But we, we feel their emotions, uh, even at the beginning when he lies and says that he kills the serpent. We all understand the motivation to want to take credit for some great deed and we understand why he tells that lie and so I think despite the nature of the characters being not true to life and intentionally so we can all relate to what they're going through tell us how we (laughs) see this piece of course so we're doing two performances for the public Uh, the first will be on Saturday November 12th at 7 p.m. And the second will be on Sunday, November 13th at 2 p.m. The performances are in the auditorium of the Setlevergetta Center on the Marywood University campus. It's free for everyone. I would encourage parents to take their kids. It is a family-friendly opera. I, I did make an allusion earlier in the inter- interview. There are references to self-harm when when Papageno considers ending his life, but we try to present it, as Mozart does, in a humorous way with some levity. So hopefully it won't be triggering to people. We intended this to be something that could be enjoyed by people of any age. Everything is in English, free for everyone, and there's one intermission. It will probably last about two and a half hours. I think people may have the impression that operas go on for four, five, six hours. This is not one of those operas. I'll also add that we're doing an abbreviated version of the opera with no intermission, about an hour long, at 10 a.m. on Thursday, November 10th for middle school and high school students in the area. So we've tried to, it's, it's a busy time. It's uh, the day before a lot of Veterans Day programs, and so uh, a lot of schools weren't able to participate, but whatever schools were available, we've welcomed them to come on Thursday, November 10th. I really want to expose young people to opera and let them see that it's very much like musical theater. The style may be a little bit different, but especially Magic Flute, which is technically not even an opera. It's technically a Zingspiel, which was popular at the time Mozart wrote this, and that just means it's opera interspersed with spoken dialogue. So 
in that way, it, it's very much like musical theater, just maybe written in a classical music vein. Dr. Rick Hoffenberg, who is co-chair of Marywood's Department of Music, Theater, and Dance, and the music director and conductor for the upcoming production of The Magic Flute to be presented at Marywood University. The stage director for this production is A. Scott Parry, who is on the faculties of the Manhattan School of Music and NYU. He's directed productions around the country, and he came to the campus and gave the students an intensive session on understanding their characters and the very vision he had for the magic flute. The performances are free and open to the public, and they will be held at the Set Lavargetta Center for the Performing Arts, Saturday, November 12th at 7 in the evening, and again Sunday, November 13th at 2. And also, as Dr. Hoffenberg said, there will be a compressed version of the opera performed for local middle school and high school students on Thursday, November 10th at 10 a.m. The Scranton Area Foundation was able to offer a grant to make this production possible. And the information that you need for learning about the magic flute at Marywood can be found at the Marywood website, marywood.edu. Marywood.edu. That's Mozart's The Magic Flute, and it will be presented by Marywood University on November 12th, Saturday evening at 7, that Saturday evening, and on Sunday, November 13th at 2, There is no admission charge. You're welcome to attend, encouraged to attend, especially if you have young ones. Again, it's The Magic Flute with stage direction by A. Scott Parry, and Dr. Rick Hoffenberg is the music director and conductor for this production. It's The Magic Flute at Marywood, November 12th at 7, November 13th at 2. For more information on the web, marywood.edu marywood.edu